Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my usual co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. How are you? Happy Monday. Yeah, we've been all over the place uh, with our periodicity here. Yeah, we, we, for a while we were pretty consistent with Wednesday afternoons, and now we've been kind of jumping back and forth uh, because we're booking some great talent on the show, and sometimes they're not available on Wednesday afternoons, so we, we're... You know, we go where the talent is. Semper Gumby. Semper Absolutely. Gumby. Yeah. Well, we have, before we get to our guest this week, um, we want to introduce a new member of the, of the, the Three Amigos. Yeah, yeah, so everybody knows that uh, Fred Rainbow, my former boss, the former editor-in-chief of uh, Proceedings, uh, left at the end of June, and I took over in early July and have been... Um, you know, anxiously awaiting the new deputy uh, who is with us today, Captain Bill Bray, U.S. Navy retired, uh, the new deputy editor-in-chief of Proceedings, and the new, new deputy uh, director of periodicals. So, Bill, welcome. Great to be here. So, Bill Bray was Proceedings Author of the Year in 1998. Uh, tell us just a, a little bit about your career in the Navy and what brought you to join the team here with, uh, with Proceedings. Well, I'm... Uh 1988 graduate of the the Naval Academy, and I was a service warfare officer for uh, three years and and then transferred into intelligence, spent the rest of my career as an intelligence officer, did many different tours, mostly operational and mainstream analysis tours, analysis and staff support. I've been a member of proceedings as long as I can remember, or I'm sorry, a member of the Naval Institute as long as I can remember. Um, and started writing for proceedings in the late 90s, and as you uh, mentioned, uh, author of the year, and I owe that to, to some other folks who encouraged me to do so. Um, I've been retired two years, uh, just about, uh, in September of 2016, and um, it always takes a couple of years to find the right fit when you come out of the Navy, and I found it, and I'm here, and I cannot be happier to be uh, with this great organization of the Naval Institute and uh, out here in Annapolis. Cool. So uh, Pete accused me, started to accuse me, Pete Daly, the CEO, started to accuse me of uh, some Intel mafia and sort of, you know, this was an inside hire. And, and then he found out as we were going through this that I haven't known Bill for ages. I, we just met for the first time two years ago. Uh, but he's been writing for Proceedings Today. He writes our new and notable books column uh, in Proceedings. Uh, we got to know each other because we lived fairly close to each other uh, in Burke, Virginia. And so when Fred was leaving and Dave Adams left the staff a year ago, and I knew that we would be looking for a new member of the staff. And so I talked to Bill and kind of got it percolating in his head uh, over a year ago. And then when it when the opportunity did arise, uh, he was one of the four or five people who were serious contenders for the job and and competed well and, and got the job. So it's great to have him on the team. Yeah, it's really great. Um, so we haven't created a Intel Mafia, um, but we have created a uh, Naval Academy Graduate Mafia. So uh, that's the three true. of us. That's true. And, and a Proceedings Mafia. I mean, the, the, the common denominator is that we all wrote for Proceedings. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, before we go to our guest uh, today, I do want to just uh, highlight a couple of things that are happening. We always have essay contests going on. At the end of this week, we've got the deadline for three contests, the cyber essay contest, 
the Marine Corps essay contest, which were, you know, those uh, entries are coming in fast and furious right now. And also the William Wood Foundation sponsored uh, annual Naval History essay contest, which is different from the CNO's Naval History essay contest. So that's also due uh, at the end of this month. We'll be judging those and getting them into uh, upcoming issues of, uh, of proceedings. And then for our midshipmen and cadet uh, listeners out there, uh, in at the end of October, October 31st is the deadline for the first ever uh, Midshipmen and Cadet Essay Contest open to um, people at the Coast Guard Academy, Naval Academy, NROTC, Kings Point, you name it. If you are in a commissioning program for the Navy or Marine Corps or Coast Guard, you are uh, welcome to, um, to submit an essay for this first ever uh, essay contest for midshipmen and cadets. Uh, and that one is uh, sponsored by General, De- General Dynamics Information Technology, GDIT. So we're thankful to them for, uh, for sponsoring that contest. Uh, okay, so that's all the news that, that well, we Well, and also the Naval Institute Roadshow is, speaking of the Coast Guard Academy, the Naval Institute Roadshow is coming to the Coast Guard Academy on September 11th. We're very much looking forward to, uh, it's always a great event every year. So uh, looking forward to going up there to New London. All right. And also, Bill will be uh, a co-host when required, and, and so look for him to be here. We actually, as you can see here, we have an extra jack in the mixer. So we All can right. add one more mic. We just have to buy the mic. mic. So right now we're going to have to steal your mic. Here, hand it back to me. And I'll introduce our guest. So we are super excited today to have uh, phoning into the, the podcast from Spokane, Washington, Mr. Rob Kraft, who is the Director of Undersea or Subsea Operations for Vulcan Incorporated. And our listeners will know uh, that, or, that organization um, better by the, by the moniker of Paul Allen's Undersea uh, Exploration. So in the headlines, particularly over the past year, it's just been... Discovery after discovery of U.S. Uh, US Navy World War II in the Pacific wrecks. So we had the USS Lexington. We had the USS Indianapolis uh, just highlighting uh, some of the amazing discoveries that this man and, and his team have found. So, uh, Rob Kraft, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. It's great to have you. Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, I'm glad and honored to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, so... Tell us a little bit about your background. How does one get started in the business of uh, undersea exploration and uh, doing the kind of work that you're doing? I tell you, it wasn't something that I had set out as, as kind of my number one uh, career goal. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I come out of high school and, and went into the Army. I did four years in the Army trying to figure out what I wanted to do and, and got out of there and doing construction there in the kind of the Pacific Northwest. And you know, a buddy and I started commercial, or we started uh, scuba diving, and so we just loved it. And I thought, well, what, you know, what a way to make a career out of something you like to do. And so I went to commercial diving school, and and then got out and went down to the Gulf of Mexico, and I did my stint down there, and then back to the Pacific Northwest, and you know, diving for a few years there, and I got really tired of being cold and wet. And so at that point, we went into, uh, you know, the company I was working for in Hawaii, they. Uh, decided to buy a couple of submersibles, you know, little one-man subs. And so we we did some exploration, commercial work there around Hawaii. And um, and then again, you know, you're, you're in that environment. You're cold and wet. So I got tired of that. And then we <laughs> I kind of migrated over to remote vehicles. 
And so, you know, doing that for several years and, and back to the Gulf of Mexico, and then one thing led to another, and I found myself uh, working for Vulcan as a contractor at that point back in about uh, 2007, and, you know, kind of supporting the operations on the, the private yacht, and they had the, the submersible and the remote vehicle, and then it just really kind of expanded from there uh, to where we are today. Very cool. Hey, uh, some of our uh, listeners will be aware of um, an article that we ran in Naval History Magazine in the uh, July, August. yeah, July August issue of, of Naval History just two months ago, um, and it's called uh, Paul Allen's Winning Season. And it was written by a guy named Dr. Uh, James Delgado, who has also done a lot of uh, undersea archaeology. Uh, and he wrote this very admiring article about the work that you and your team have done and just the, how hard it is to find things on the bottom of the seafloor. Uh, and, and on uh, page, it starts on page 22, 23 of the August issue of Naval History Magazine. But he, he talks about how, particularly the Lexington, that uh, he says, you know, it was hard enough uh, for Bob Ballard's team to find the Titanic which is carrier size, and it's on a very you know, flat ocean plain at the bottom of the Atlantic. But he says finding the Lexington, which was sunk during the Battle of Coral Sea, was really the, the underwater topography is a lot like the Grand Canyon. Uh, so can you talk about that a little bit, about finding the Lexington, how you guys uh, targeted that ship, uh, how long it took once you decided that you wanted to do that, and then the actual uh, tools needed to find uh, a wreck at the depth that it sits at uh, in, in that kind of topogra topography, an underwater mountain range at the bottom of the Pacific. Yeah, it's, uh, I did read uh, Dr. Delgado's um, article. It was a very flattering article and, and uh, very well written. And, and yeah, it... Uh, I tell you what, you know what we we've been doing here has been extremely difficult. It's it's not uh, it, it's definitely like finding a needle in a haystack, and and the Lexington in particular, um, you know, I would actually highlight that the the USS Indianapolis was was the most difficult uh, search that we have undertaken to this date. The, the Lexington, uh, although challenging in its own right. Um, we, we had very good positioning information on her, you know, because she was scuttled. Um, and so the positions that were reported uh, after that action were really, really good. Uh, but the, you know, that environment is, you know, like he said, it, it is like searching for something in the Grand Canyon. And the tools and the team that you need to pull something off like that is just, it's tremendous. You know, the asset that we use for searching, uh, we've got a couple of AUVs and, in our deep water system there, and most of them have limitations in terms of terrain that it can negotiate. You know, they've got, um, you know, physical limits in terms of, you know, pitch up and down uh, that it can, you know, navigate these, these this terrain. And the problem is, is when you have environments that exceed those, those pitch angles, you have all kinds of uh, holidays and voids in the data, so you just have to keep going back over it and over it until you get 100% coverage. And so, you know, some of these areas that we're searching are, you know, it, it takes a long time to get that done. Um, you know, the USS Indianapolis was, uh, w was probably one of the highlights uh, of our career, and it was actually the first one that, uh, that we went after, you know, with this, this particular uh, system after we outfitted petrol with the AUV and the ROV and 
and whatnot. But we searched hundreds of square miles uh, looking for the Indianapolis in some terrain that, you know, some of this terrain was 2,000 meters in vertical relief. So it was, this is very, very extreme. Um, and it's, it, it's hard on the vehicle, uh, and it's, <laughs> it, it's definitely hard on the equipment. It's a tough challenge for sure. What's the depth that the uh, Indianapolis sits at? Uh, five thousand five hundred meters. Wow! And and uh, Lexington? Yeah, uh, four and a half thousand meters. Wow! So just uh, you threw out a couple of acronyms there: AUV, ROV, uh, and and the petrol is the ship. That's the mothership that you're operating off of. Uh, so just tell us a little bit, like you know, describe a, a day in the life as you go from the finding to the actual exploring, and and um, how how does the AUV differ from the ROV? Right. So, you know, the, the whole process really starts with uh, research. Uh, so one of the guys uh, on our team does a lot of research at the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the archives there in D.C., and we've got a lot of contacts that, that we lean on for information. And, and this takes weeks and months to be able to gather all of this information and analyze it and come up with, you know, kind of a, a last known position, sinking position for these vessels. And, you know, so a lot of that is, is, is happening as we're out on the mission. You know, we get a preliminary um, search area. We do kind of a primary, a secondary, and a tertiary area that we want to search. And then we then you know, we go out and we start in the primary area. And then it's, you know, kind of the day in the life is, is out on board is the AUV or the autonomous underwater vehicle uh, is something that we program on the surface. We tell it exactly where we want it to go and what kind of a pattern, a search pattern we want it to do. And so we, we get the vehicle ready, we launch it, we let it go. And this is completely autonomous. It goes all by itself. And we, and we just sit over the top of it and we monitor it. So we get health and status from the vehicle. We know what it's doing most of the time anyway. And then while that's occurring, I mean, that goes on for about 18 to 20 hours. And while that's happening, we're reviewing the, you know, the action reports. We're just mowing back over through the data to make sure that, you know, we're where we want to be or where we want to be searching. So when the vehicle's done, about 18 to 20 hours, we pick it up, we bring it back on board, we download the data, and then we then we uh, we process the data and we look for targets of interest. You know, it's you you kind of get an eye in this side scan sonar data of you know it's it's kind of looking for what shouldn't be there. Um, you know, because you get a feel for the terrain and the seafloor or what that looks like, and then you're just looking for these hard reflective targets and you know debris fields and these large objects. And so if we don't find what we're looking for in that particular search area, then we we carry on. You know, we we repeat the process. And then once we do identify a particular target of interest, depending on where it's at, if we can keep diving the AUV, then we will do that. And then we will take the ROV, or the remotely operated vehicle, and we will go investigate these targets. We'll have, you know, we may have a target list of, you know, two, three, four, five dozen targets of interest, depending. And a lot of this is driven by the terrain. The, the, the more extreme the terrain, the more targets that you seem to have because of, you know, the features, the rock, the, you know, the hard reflective uh, objects that you're seeing down there. But we like to dive simultaneous. So if we can keep the AUV working and searching and we use the ROV to go investigate and rule out targets and we just continue this process until we find what we're looking for. Now, the AUV, I mean, it is a fantastic search tool because 
it can look out. So the side scan sonar, we look out one kilometer on either side of the vehicle. So we can cut a swath that's two kilometers wide. So we can search a large area, you know, especially when we're looking for large targets, you know, um, capital ships and things like that. So we can, we can cover a, a vast area very, very quickly. So that's what in, in his article, Dr. Delgado describes as mowing the lawn. And so that yeah. what, what's the depth that the AUV is operating at? It, it's rated to dive to fire to 6,000 meters. Now, we've, we've done some searching here. Uh, we did one in January for uh, NAVC, and uh, we were diving in 5,700 meters of water. So it's mowing the lawn at that depth. Even yeah. Got it. And, and when, when the terrain is as difficult as it is, you've got to be up above that terrain. So you're up above the Grand Canyon, you know, you're, you're not, or, you're, or is it down in it? No, you are down in it. I, I guess I left that out. And so what you're doing is, is you're running the vehicle in what they call altitude mode. So it is maintaining an altitude off the seafloor. So if we set it at, you know, 60 or 80 meters, it's going to maintain that the best that it can. And so it's going to try and go up and down those, those slopes the best that it can, you know, to its max uh, pitch angles. Um, what, what are the emotions like when, when you guys realize you've, you've found the, the principal target? Is it like high fives and just amazing? Or, I mean, what, what's that, what's the, the, the atmosphere like? You know, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of emotions that are, that are, um, you know, that you're, you're experiencing at that time. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly, uh, a lot of high fives. There's exhilaration. There's, there's relief. Um, and you know, that's just when you find it. And then when we put the remote vehicle down and we go have a look, then that's, you know, there's there's a lot of varying emotions that they go from that to, um, you know, just kind of a solemn, um, you know, understanding of what you're looking at. So there's uh, quite a few, certainly. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good good point that the solemn and that's mentioned in in uh, uh, James's article uh, the the that that feeling and and as I look at Paul Allen the the images that were provided courtesy of, uh, of Paul Allen, particularly this. Uh, uh, the the devastator the TBD one um, on the flight deck I was a naval aviator so that that strikes me very uh, profoundly um, and we also here have an oral history um, uh, an entire archives of, of principals who've, who've given sat down sat down with our historians and 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 talked about their careers and one we have in particular is the the guy who was the skipper of Lexington on the day it went down. Um, and also Admiral Thatch, um, who was aboard with Butch O'Hare, and you know the, the guys who were the, the the Wildcat pilots, the fighter pilots aboard right. uh, on the in the air wing. And so when you piece those things together, you know, and the humanity of it, and you know, some of the images, not in this article, but I saw some images um, that showed the kill markings on the side of the F4Fs and and that sort of thing. You know, it just it is the 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 humanity of it, and 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 the the tragedy of loss, and just the consequences of war, um, really do come to the fore. It is a solemn sight. It's like you guys have stumbled on on a memorial, right? Yeah, you know, every one of these uh, um, the finds are, you know, is definitely a memorial. Uh, you know, the sailors lost their lives, uh, aviators lost their lives, and so it's. 
you know, when you, I say, when you get down there with the ROV, it's kind of a different emotion and feeling than when, you know, the AUV and you're, you're, you're seeing that target because you really, you know, you really have an understanding and it really brings it home to what, you know, what had occurred there. And so it's, yeah, it can definitely be upsetting at times. Um, yeah, because you're, you're finding personal effects and so it really hits home. Yeah. Is part of your mission planning anything around, um, you know, sort of honoring the crews or honoring the the war graves? Yeah, we do. Um, you know, we it, we will do memorials at these sites. Um, you know, the uh, every single one of them we we perform a memorial, and it's and it's not just the the U.S. ships that we find. It's you know the the Japanese ones as well. You know, and it's out of respect for. You know all of the sailors and all of the people that lost their lives. It was it was a very dark time, and so it's um, you know I think it's it's important to uh, to remember that. Well, as Bill mentioned, the Lexington was, was lost during the Battle of Coral Sea. As I also said, this oral history that we have, and this is also on our SoundCloud page uh, for the audience. Uh, if you go at SoundCloud.com and U.S. Naval Institute, you can find this conversation. But the captain relays this sort of odd vignette about as the crew was abandoning ship, the supply officer was trying to get rid of cartons of ice cream. And so he entreated the sailors to come to the fantail and, and get some ice cream before they bailed you know, bailed over the side. And they were all too happy to do that, right? I mean, young sailors like, ice cream, you know? And, and so they would stand in line in the middle of this chaos uh, and, and then get their ice cream and they'd eat it and they bailed into the side and they immediately threw it up because of the salt water and the oil and, and all the other right. fuel. And um, so he... he says this in the oral history it's just one of those things you don't think about you know uh, those those human details of war that's uh, incredibly fascinating so bill mentioned indianapolis and in lexington another one is the juno which uh people may or may not know listeners may or may not know that the sullivan brothers were aboard the juno right and so that's another very solemn uh de facto gravesite. so what was finding that like yeah, that was that was a tough one. There's you know there's just a lot of history there, um, and you know finding the Juno was it, it was it was difficult again. You know the the terrain was challenging. The, the information that we had uh, for Juno was not that precise, so it it took a bit of searching to find her. Um, and you know when we did find it, we weren't we didn't actually know that we had found it because we found a little bit of debris, and it took it took quite a while to find, you know, the, the, the wreckage of her. And again, there was a lot of, uh, you know, personal effects that we came across. Um, so it was, and given the history and, and the surviving granddaughter. And so there's just a, a lot of things that were happening there that, um, you know, were pretty upsetting for the crew. Uh, it, each one of these has, you know, her own unique story. Uh, and history behind them and so it's and a lot of this we learn as you know as we're searching and throughout the discoveries and so it's you know we're getting a lot of messages on Facebook we're getting a lot of people reaching out to us Um, and so we learn a lot about this as we are on site Um, so it's it's just really kind of a uh, you know a whirlwind of of emotion that we're experiencing out there yeah there's something about the underwater environment and you know the the tranquility of it um, that that really makes it distinct. Um, you know, and, and uh, 
I mean, these pictures are just very vivid, as was the video um, that you guys released at the time. Um, yeah, so I, I, I get what you're saying. And when you, when you see it for the first time, like something you can recognize, um, you know, it, it's got to just be a, a real, either a gut, gut punch or some, some uh, you know, elation, depending on what it is. Yeah, indeed. Very much so. Hey, Rob, you mentioned earlier that uh, one of, you have a researcher who's working with the archive, and that's a, the Naval Historical and Heritage Command. Uh, are they part of helping you guys decide what ships to go after, what wrecks to look for? Is there a target list that you, you know, are planning out for the next year or two? Can you tell us or share with us what comes next? Yeah, that's that's a very common question, and that uh, you know I've even seen some people uh, posting on Facebook that uh, hey, these guys must you know have this tucked away in a safe on board petrol. You know, nobody knows what we're doing, and and it is something that we you know we plan this strategically, and uh, really there's no targets that are off our list. Um, you know, we prioritize um, targets of interest and, and things that we want to go search for, and. And the researcher that we have on board is, is uh, uh, one of my colleagues and, and works for me that's on the team, uh, Paul Mayer. And he's, he's kind of taken this on in the last two or three years. He's, you know, he really wanted to get involved in the research side of this. And so he's done a fantastic job at that. And, uh, you know, I work with uh, my boss, David Reams, and with uh, Mr. Allen to determine you know, we we provide Mr. Allen the options and, and give him our recommendations and in, in which way we want to go and, and what, uh, you know, targets that we want to look for. And, and he provides his inputs and make decisions based on that. And, and a lot of times it's done based on uh, geography, you know, where the boat is. And, you know, so it doesn't make sense to go, you know, look for uh, Indianapolis in the wintertime because it's just not the right time of year to be in that hemisphere in that location. So, you know, we've got to kind of massage the, the geography and, and where we're at and what's available. So, you know, there, you know, it's really not something that we advertise, you know, what our next particular target is, but it's, you know, it's not too hard to follow us, um, you know, with marine traffic and ship finder, you can always kind of see where the boat is. And if you know where the, you'd have to connect the dots of history to make that. Have yeah, any, uh, exactly. Yeah. If you know your history, you can kind of look yeah. and, and see what we're doing. Um, so you mentioned uh, Mr. Allen. Can you tell us a little bit about about him and his interest? Uh, you know, I think the audience knows he's the co-founder of Microsoft. Um, so how did he come to be interested in undersea exploration? You know, it, it started. You know, this is this is I've experienced this since you know back in 2007, 2008 when we started working from uh, um, the exploration yacht uh, Octopus, and you know we had the tools on board there, and you know Mr. Allen has always expressed a keen interest in you know the archaeology and the biology and the research, the exploration, the history of you know that era, and and a lot of it is remembering the service of his father, and so. You know, with all of these these tools at his disposal, he's he you know he's able to affect and, and kind of act on that interest, and so that's something that we've been doing, you know, for years. And it's uh, um, you know I think it's a it, it's a great thing to be able to kind of give back, um, you know, and the and the public interest has been, and the you know the feedback that we've received has been extremely positive, and so it's it's something that uh, he's he's willing to continue 
So you 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 know we target the wreck, we find the wreck, we um, you know sort of rig it as we say in Navy parlance. What what else happens? What else uh, beyond the scope of uh, this this feature in Naval History Magazine happens uh, in after you find a wreck? We do everything we can to document the wreck, and and we keep everything very confidential. Um, you know, we don't we don't advertise positions. We don't give those out to people. We've had um, you know various organizations approach us and say they're you know they're going out there with a submersible. They'd like to dive on it, and you know it's it's not really our our place to be providing that information to somebody because it is you know it's sovereign property the you know the U.S. Navy, and so it's. Um, we take that very seriously, and these are war graves, and we don't want – we do everything we can to protect that. And so what we do is we document either by video, sonar, um, and at times we can do some bathymetry work on these, these sites, and we provide that to the Navy History and Heritage Command, you know, Dr. Nalen over there and his group, and um, just as part of the permanent record. And, and it's up to him, you know, because it's that group – that administrates and manages that information. So we provide that all to them, and if you know, they can distribute as they see fit. You know, that's that's kind of our position on it. So in this uh, naval history article, uh, Dr. Delgado points out that uh, early on the octopus uh, found uh, and ultimately recovered the bell of the HMS Hood for the Royal Navy. Uh, has has the U.S. Navy, has NHH, the Naval History and Heritage Command, have they asked you to recover any parts of the wrecks that you've found of U.S. Navy ships during from World War II? No, they have not. And that was, you know, the the HMS Hood was a uh, it was a unique um, situation in that we were approached by um, the Hood Association and you know ultimately the. The, the MOD, and they, they came to us, the Royal Navy, and they asked us if we would recover the bell for them. Um, and so that that's really why that happened. Um, it's, you know, we don't, we're kind of a look but don't touch. And if somebody wants uh, something recovered, you know, and if they want to approach us and ask us to do so, then we'll certainly consider it. But uh, to date, the uh, uh, NHAC has not asked us to do anything like that. Got it. Hey, so if you go back 20 years ago, I would say that, you know, most people would say that, uh, you know, Titanic was sort of the white whale of, of, of shipwrecks that hadn't been found. And then uh, more recently, the Indianapolis, certainly for the U.S. Navy, was that, as you said, it was the harder, much harder to find because we didn't have good information about where it went down. Is there currently a white whale out there that, you know, is uh, foremost in your mind of would really love to find, you know, this ship? He, you know, there's there's not just one. There's there's a few. What um, are they? <laughs> just, this You're is just in, in the, the corner, guys. this is no <laughs> no. It's just, just in the abstract. It's this just, is, just we're us, not we're not right? saying this is the order you're looking for things. But if you're, what would your top three dream lineup be? You know, I think that uh, you know some of the the capital ships, um, you know, the carriers um, are are some of the most interesting um, to me personally. Uh, they have really quite a bit of history behind them. So, if, you know, if you look at kind of the um, Battle of Santa Cruz Highlands down there, uh, Solomon Islands area, you know, you've you've got the Midway carriers. Um, you know, that's kind of a dream of mine. I, you know, I don't know if or when we'll get up there, but um, those would be great to find. Uh, we'd really like to do that. 
Very cool. Uh, last question for you. Could you talk a little bit about the size of the team and the expertise that you have in your team on petrol? How many people, uh, how many people run the AUV versus the ROV? Uh, you know, what's the, the crew like of, of the ship? How, what's the, di- the division of labor between those who run the, the underwater part of it and those that actually run the mothership, the petrol? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because it. Uh, I, I tell you one thing that it's. It, you know, you need to have the equipment, but you also have to have the team to be able to do something like this and what we've been able to do. And um, you know, the the marine crew that we have on Petrol are some of the most experienced and some of the best vessel operators that I've worked with over my career. Um, these guys are really, really good. Um, and there's about 22 marine crew on board Petrol. My team consists of about, uh, I think there's 14 guys, and I rotate them around between, you know, we still have operations on Octopus, um, we've got, uh, you know, Petrol, and then so we try to rotate them them out and, and through the vessels uh, the best that we can. And so the, the uh, AUV team is uh, consists of about three uh, operators right now. And uh, the rest of the guys are ROV and uh, operate our submersible. So kind of petrol operations, we've got uh, usually a run with about an eight or a nine-man team. And this allows us to be able to run 24 hours a day uh, AUV operations as well as dive the ROV as needed. And the team that we have are, are it's kind of a very unique team, I I think that uh, each one of these guys is multidisciplined, multi-skilled, and so it's the same guy that's operating the AUV as running the crane to pick it up and launch it that can sit in as, as an ROV uh, co-pilot, and vice versa. The team is a very well-rounded, very experienced set of individuals, and um, it really takes that to be able to affect what we're doing with kind of a small team, but to accomplish the mission. Very cool. Is there a piece of technology that you would love to have that you don't have yet or that's coming uh, or that do you guys uh, do you have a uh, sort of an an R&D process of talking to the the companies that that build AUVs or uh, ROVs? Uh, Is there is there, you know, a technology that is uh, that would help you on the on the next big expedition that you run? Yeah, you know, there's there's kind of one thing that, uh, um, you know, on my wish list, uh, if you will, that uh, we'd like to get for the ship, and that would be a, uh, a deep water, kind of a 12 kilohertz multi-beam system to really provide us that bathymetry, that initial look at what that topography uh, in the search site is. And right now, you know, we've, we've got uh, an echo sounder that can get down there. I need to be able to see what the depth is so we can program the AUV properly. Uh, and we have that, but, but to be able to provide that, that entire bathymetry of the site really gives you a kind of a heads-up look at how to program your AUV. Because a lot of times, you, you know, you don't want to be running into the side of a mountain. You may want to run alongside of it, and you don't know that until you get down there and do it, unless you've got this bathymetry. So, you know, but in terms of the AUV and the ROV, I think we're, we're very well uh, uh, kind of outfitted with that equipment. So just kind of the one for the ship would be my next, uh, uh, or on the wish list anyway. Got it. Uh, I'll point out to uh, our listeners, many of whom, including myself, 
uh, spent time on ships at sea, but much bigger than petrol. So petrol is 215, 250 feet long and only 1,500 tons. So in rough seas, you guys move a lot. This is, this is not uh, uh, being at sea on a, on a uh, cruise ship or an aircraft carrier or even a destroyer or a Navy frigate for that matter. Uh, this is a relatively small ship, and when you're in rough weather, that's got to be uh, you know, pretty, pretty tough sailing. She, she's not too bad, to be perfectly honest. She is a purpose-built uh, offshore support vessel. You know, she was built for the North Sea, and she's got a very, very deep draft in her. She's, she's 7.2 meters. Um, so it's actually restrictive at times when we go into ports, kind of where we can go. But I think because of that uh, and some of the systems she has on board, anti-healing and passive tanks um she sits really well in heavy weather now she doesn't sail very well in it but when we're operating she does pretty good you know with the rov etc she pitches a lot when we're when we're underway for sure what's the longest you guys have been underway um i think our longest mission has been it's about 30 days got it that's a good long mission yeah So our guest has been Robert Kraft, who's Paul Allen's Director of Subsea Operations. Uh, There's an article in the July-August issue of Naval History Magazine, as Bill mentioned, called Paul Allen's Winning Season. We very much recommend to our audience fantastic stuff. So, uh, Robert, thanks for spending some time with us here on the Proceedings Podcast today. Thanks very much for having me. It's been an honor. Yeah, it's great, great having you. All right, so that that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, We'll be with you next week uh, after Labor Day. Uh, Enjoy your three-day weekend, and remember, victory begins with the Naval Institute.